morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, we're going to be answering the following three questions. First, how has the Chinese student market changed during COVID? Second, will the Department of Commerce's global marketing campaign make a difference? And third, what is the cost of closed borders for international education? We'll take a look at these three questions and more on today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. For those not familiar with the Roundup, what we do each week is we take uh, three different themes we've been seeing in news stories over the last week, and we put those into question forms, and we spend the next half hour answering those to help us understand better the issues that are affecting our field, and perhaps talk about solutions that might impact uh, what we do in international education. Now, for those who have followed the Roundup, uh, you know that we take the news stories we cover each week in these forms of questions from our SMIE Consulting e-newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share. And in case you're wondering, SMIE stands for Social Media and International Education Consulting. That's the business that we have. And we t send that newsletter out on Monday mornings. That can be available free to you, free of charge to you by going to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And you can sign up quickly for the newsletter there. Uh, alternately, we put the link to the most common, uh, most recent edition of the newsletter in the chat on our Facebook page, where we do our live chats each Wednesday afternoon. So you can get the, putting the link to this week's edition in the chat now. Now, for what we do today, we're going to get right into these three questions. So I want to obviously say thank you to everybody who's watching live, those of you watching on repeat, either on our YouTube channel or our Facebook page, as well as those who download us each week and make uh, podcast listening for the um, roundup part of their weekly international edification. So let's get right into the first question. How has the Chinese student market changed during COVID? Now, for me, um, one of the there are a number of uh, vendors out there, service providers that provide some uh, decent services to access the Chinese market uh, to help you understand it better. Uh, but probably the company that I've really gotten to know uh, well over the last three or four years that has a really good uh, finger on the pulse of what's going on there, based on their operations in China, uh, is Sonorbis. And Sonorbis uh, does quite a bit in China, and they've got a couple of uh, couple of things we'll be sharing the links to today. First up is the a, a new a new blog that they where they're talking specifically about this issue. On the, the article is titled "How the Role of the Student Recruiter Has Evolved Since COVID," and they talk. They have some really great in-country expertise. Obviously, uh, they exclusively focus on the Chinese market. Uh, started initially uh, working with Australian and New Zealand institutions to uh, access the Chinese market. They've since expanded to the U.S., U.K., and Canada. So most of the English-speaking world is now uh, looking to Sonorbis in one way or another for information and access and products to help them dig deeper into uh, accessing the Chinese market. But this this particular piece is a nice blog article that uh, uh, really focuses on some of the kind of realities on the ground uh, for Chinese students in terms of uh, the demand for going abroad. It's certainly been confirmed not just by Sonorvis but by other other um, sources, including the Chinese government-owned China Daily, uh, which reported last week that 91% of China's would-be international students still intend to study abroad, and of that number. Almost 30% plan to 
start their overstudy, their start their research two years in advance of when they want to go, which is good news in that there's lead up time that you can st you still have a chance for another year or two away to, to get, get some traction with a group of students in China that want to come in a couple of years. So that means, hey, if you've got to get out there now uh, if you want to have a chance at 2023 students perhaps. So what, uh, what, that, what, what these two, two, two data points say is that their demand is still there and still very high. And uh, that stu Chinese students are being more circumspect, perhaps, in terms of the, what they're considering, uh, the factors that they're considering as to where they go, uh, what countries they even consider. Uh, and Sonorbus boils it down to th kind of three areas um, of how students' ch ch priorities have changed during the pandemic. Obviously, we've talked about uh, many times over the course of the last uh, couple of years uh, of the, uh, that we've been impacted by the pandemic is how the host countries have differently responded to the, country, to the effect of the pandemic. Uh, we've seen some countries and the major destinations for uh, international students uh, completely shut down borders. Australia, New Zealand, China, Japan have basically put a kibosh on new students or even returning students coming back to uh, begin or continue their studies. So that uh, the pandemic response of the local, local host, of the host countries is important uh, from a border control perspective, even if it's even possible to get in with um, obviously Australia and New Zealand uh, really giving new students or even continuing students, the only option for them was to uh, do it online. And that's been less than perfect, and that's not the reason why international students apply to institutions overseas, frankly. They want to go for the experience, and they, they've seen it as a temporary thing. And they, there were surveys at the beginning of the pandemic that said that if the, if the students see that they can access that country, and if uh, that institution is going to commit to in-person study, then, hey, that's going to be a more attractive destination than, uh, than, than perhaps doing it fully online for the next two years, which is what most students have had to do if they're looking at Australia, New Zealand, or China. So that's pandemic response policies of the host country is important. The local severity of the pandemic impacts decision making. If it, there have been huge flare-ups in the areas where they might be, students might be interested in studying, that may be a cautionary tale against maybe focusing in certain areas. Uh, and then the state of host country relations with China. And most of the Western world hasn't had the best of relations with China, Australia, and, and the U.S. certainly are uh, probably on the lower end of that scale in terms of uh, uh, negative impressions. But Canada and the U.K. have had their challenges as well. But probably the U.K. has come out best uh, in respect to uh, the relationships with China uh, in, as opposed to Canada. They got involved in the Huawei scandal with the holding a uh, holding, uh, Huawei executive, and that turned Canadian or Chinese interest in Canada off a little bit. Uh, the U.S. obviously under Donald Trump uh, was very negative towards Canada, or to, towards China, and the Biden administration still been continuing a lot of those same policies, though have kind of eased back on some of the China initiative uh, goals that had initially dragged um, China Chinese-U.S. relationships down. But uh, what is important is that some, most of this is outside the control of individual colleges. But what, what the Sonorbus piece makes clear, and I certainly agree with completely, are there two main groups that you can utilize, if you have them, uh, to kind of paint your own narrative uh, or uh, describe 
your reality for uh, your students. And that is your use of alumni and your use of your current international student or current students from China uh, to help tell your story. But they have to tell it on Chinese social media because we all know uh, if you've been in the business for more than a minute that uh, unless you have a VPN in China, you're not getting access to Western social media, that they have their own social media ecosystem there. And having presence on those, on those platforms makes sense. But also, not just presence on the platforms, it's also having your content accessible. Because you know, your website content in China doesn't really, even, if someone types in your university name, your institutional website probably isn't going to be in the top 10, top 15, top 20 uh, results for your university name. It's going to be various uh, um, news stories about it or how your, um, or some, some homegrown or uh, agent site for your institution perhaps that might exist. So that's, that's a real access to the Chinese market is, is one where uh, you don't, if you don't have that kind of web presence, you don't have presence on their social media platforms institutionally, then you're certainly at a disadvantage. But at least if you have students from China or that have graduated, gone home, or current students that are enrolled that can take, uh, can fly the flag for you on Chinese social media and have, be intentional about sharing those positive messages about their experiences on campus or what your degree for alumni, what their, your degree has led to for them uh, in terms of returning to China, in terms of jobs and uh, access that they have, that matters. And it's the same kind of stories that you want to, you, you want to be able to say for your other major source, uh, sources of students, other markets that you're getting into. If you have current students, you have alumni that can tell your institution's story to those students directly, that prospective students and their parents directly, those are the, those are the, the most valuable uh, recruitment tools that you can have, where it's not just you as an admissions person or you as an international educator sharing that story. It's straight from the horse's mouth kind of, kind of messaging. But what the, mess, what the uh, Sonorbus article also points out is a couple of areas that, um, that pop up in terms of areas of concern, uh, language skills, safety, um, response to the pandemic, that type of thing. So the kinds of messages that your current students can share that are going to be the most timely and the most impactful to your future uh, students from that country are going to be the ones that answer those kinds of questions, the kinds of questions that prospective students are asking about, health and safety, uh, those kinds of things, how their adaptation of campuses, how their language skills uh, uh, were before they got there and once they, once they arrived and how that's developed. So if you're not addressing those in your communication flow, that if um, one, of, one, one of the institutions I'm working with, their, their comm flow is very process oriented. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of whys you should study that are baked into specific messaging for all the various groups that they're talking about. And there's some topics they don't even cover at all because they haven't really thought about putting uh, international language, international topics of concern into their communication flow. That's changing, uh, but the, it's, a, it's a slow process, uh, understandably, but you have to start thinking about it, not just from here's what you need to do to get through the, our admissions process and become a student at our institution. You need to think about it as, as you need to do a convincing job. You need to market to them. You need to show them why your institution for a student from that country is going to be a, a, a viable option for them and an attractive one. 
So what's, uh, what, the present, what's, what really you need to focus on as institutions in your messaging, and that's, that's something that I, I see more and more from uh, colleges that I, I'm, I'm doing work with, is they really don't have strong messaging that talks to institutional values beyond just very high-level uh, plateau, uh, plateau, plateaus of uh, what, you, what institutions might, might have as, as a mission, but very rarely do they go deep into uh, beyond process to the whys of uh, an international student in a very globally competitive market should consider not just your institution but coming to the United States because frankly these students have multiple options in terms of destination countries. Chinese students especially, they're being courted by everybody and their brother because they're seen as the number one source of international students, not just for English-speaking countries, but for, for many in Europe, for Japan, for Korea, uh, for many in East and South Asia. Uh, those are, Chinese students are very attractive and they're being happily sought after and have many options. So the more that you're doing to connect with them and talk to them and kind of make clear that, hey, you seek them out, you want them, that you are doing what you can, you're showing, showing them what it's going to be like for them by having your current students from that country uh, uh, paint their picture for them, telling alumni success stories, having faculty perhaps that can share that kind of content, native language content is important. So are you doing any of that? in your communication flows, uh, the way you're recruiting your international students and, and in particular students from China. So a great piece from Sonorbis uh, along with uh, an upcoming webinar that they're doing on the 16th. So that'll be happening uh, next Tuesday, uh, no, Tuesday, November 16th, that'll be going on. I'm posting the link to that webinar and they're going to be covering a lot of what's in the blog more, a bit more in depth. So I certainly recommend uh, attending that if you're at all interested in the Chinese market. So let's get on to the next question. Will the Department of Commerce's global marketing campaign make a difference? And make, when I say make a difference, in we're looking at, in, from the U.S. perspective, things changed in late July, uh, frankly, when we heard at the EdUSA forum uh, that uh, there is this renewed commitment, uh, a joint, uh, joint proposal uh, or joint statement by uh, Departments of Commerce, Education, State, uh, and Homeland Security all on the, on the same page in terms of backing a renewed commitment to international education. The hopes that this may turn into a national strategy for international education are, are, are still there. We're a long way to go before we even can say with any uh, legitimacy that we have a national policy. We don't yet, but we're taking initial steps. Uh, and colleagues who work in the administration, uh, have worked in the State Department for years, have said that uh, the Biden administration is known for being an idea kind of uh, administration. They have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of energy initially around these great ideas and they make big splashes with them. Uh, and the, certainly the renewed commitment to international education was one of those uh, in over the summer, late summer. Uh, but the follow-through is always where the, or the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, uh, that sometimes these big ideas get lost and kind of get in the shuffle of, of government, of other major issues that pop on the radar. So we'll see what happens with that. But this, at least uh, from the Department of Commerce's perspective, and for Department of Commerce, we're talking about the International Trade Administration within the Department of Commerce uh, that uh, has worked with uh, various study state consortia uh, over the last um, 20 years 
uh, 15, well, 15, 15, 20 years or so. Uh, if, especially going back to my days in Education USA, uh, that was one of my roles is working with some of the study state consortia to uh, provide ways that they can connect with Education USA, talk through my own experiences having worked uh, on the, in the initial stages of Destination Indiana and doing major programming throughout our time, my time with, with that organization, uh, talking about some of the success stories. So I spent the better part of four years traveling around to different study state groups, uh, sharing how Education USA might be able to help, but how they could help themselves in the way they organize, the way they set up, uh, and the way they promote themselves. And of those study state consortia, uh, the greater majority uh, have been influenced or helped form as a result of, uh, of the Department of Commerce and the International Trade Administration. So in all honesty, uh, Commerce has been very involved in getting these state study consortia off the ground uh, in a lot of different cases. Uh, what the challenge has been is when we've talked about international education policy, promoting the U.S. as a whole, uh, you still have really commerce and state are the only ones that really do campaigns. Uh, we've seen Department of Homeland Security when they, after 9-11 when they were formed that uh, really answered some of the uh, kind of procedural questions and had study in the state site launch and had resources online for students and to understand that process of uh, their uh, rights and responsibilities in the U.S. once they're in status. That's all still there, but it isn't really promote, aren't really promotional campaigns that they've done. It's really been commerce and state that have had any, made any significant effort uh, on the international front. Uh, and we about two years ago, coming up two years this um, this May, uh, the uh, Department of Commerce uh, had launched in 2019 during NAFSA and in DC. Impl implemented what they called USA, a study destination. And initially, this was meant as kind of an internal US kind of promotional piece, not promotional, but just organizational piece to gather the state study consortia together under a, an umbrella uh, for, uh, for promotion. Not all of them are directly uh, kind of working with uh, the uh, Department of Commerce, but certainly um, a good, good majority of them were and are. So this was uh, complementing this back, back in 2019 when they launched USA a study destination. Uh, for the longest time, all it had was a list of the different study state consortia. And that was it. Uh, wasn't anything promotional about it. It was more just internal, uh, internal study state groups. Uh, but now they've taken, taken, a, taken the first steps towards a promotional campaign. They've, uh, they've called it a global marketing campaign that is targeting more international students by utilizing the country's study state consortium. Uh, they have, uh, I'm involved with one of those study states, uh, Michigan. Uh, we launched uh, earlier this year and have um, done a couple of virtual fairs. Uh, we've got our site launched, social media launched, and the, the campaign that the Commerce has developed is to generate uh, around certain key issues uh, on employability, internships, uh, attractiveness of campuses, uh, experiential learning, that type of thing. Uh, doing different themes each month uh, related to those, but also focusing on a couple of uh, state groups each month. Uh, they started with Iowa and, uh, and another, uh, I think West Virginia. They're now doing, for November, doing a couple of others. Uh, but these resources are meant to be for all the study state groups to share on their social media resource, uh, networks. They've 
a uh, commerce has contracted with an outside PR firm to develop the campaign materials. They've also are in the process of creating these short videos for each of the study state consortium that they're rolling out over the next uh, few months. So interesting to see where this goes, but uh, this is supposed to be part of the uh, kind of the, the this new renewed commitment to international education. Uh, but it's not really being coordinated well uh, beyond the study state groups. Uh, Education USA was invited to uh, the kickoff meeting, whether they are actually, uh, there's some content there that they'll certainly would promote, but they ha I don't think they were uh, a, a full partner in, in this or from what, for whatever reasons. And there's always been those conflicts between departments. That's nothing new, frankly. Um, but cer certainly happy to see this as uh, at least a start. Uh, for this renewed commitment, uh, a, a tangible way of showing this. Uh, it'll be, see, be interesting to see the kind of traction uh, these campaigns get. I know for, our, for the study state consortia that I'm, in, I'm involved with, Study Michigan, some of the asks of the, of the study consortium are not really, I think, appropriate, that we're, they're expecting uh, the study state groups to promote other study state groups, uh, which don't make a whole lot of sense. But you can certainly see the themes of some of the, the topical things that they're covering, like employment, that type of thing, uh, jobs and campus life and all that that they're going to be covering in the coming months. They're doing it a month at a time as they roll out these assets that they expect uh, the study state groups to uh, repurpose uh, on their own social and tag appropriately and such. So w that that's out there. Uh, that's uh, things that um, that uh, is at least kind of hoping to create a groundswell and multiple taggings and social shares and all that wonderful thing. But we'll see what the, what the end results are and how, how, how much traction this, this campaign does get. But it's a start. Uh, dropping a link to a Pi News story about that new campaign as well as the USA Study Destination site uh, that shows uh, the different uh, state consortium uh, by region of the country. So. Uh, it's interesting to, to see how they have everything laid out, laid out there. But some interesting uh, data here that uh, you'll see uh, about, uh, the, the, about who, who's in, who's not, and who, who they can consider a consortium. But some interesting data there to be sure. All right, third question of our midweek roundup today is what is the cost of closed borders for international education? Now, we've talked at length over the last 19, 20 months now of the impact uh, closed borders have had on individual countries. Uh, we've talked about how China, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan have had closed borders uh, for since the beginning, really. And we, we know in Australia in particular, they've, uh, a number of their states have been uh, releasing their, uh, having their pilot projects or pilot plans approved for a, a gradual return of international students. Uh, some of them are 120, uh, 120 students, in, uh, returning international students a week uh, in some of the states in Australia. Uh, it's, it's at a time when uh, Australia in particular of the big, big five um, destination countries, uh, US, UK, uh, Australia, Canada, China are the top five. U.S., U.K., Canada, China, New Zealand. Oh yeah, U <laughs> yeah, U.S., U.K., uh, Canada, China, and Australia. 
so those those destination uh, countries have had varying reactions to how borders should be during the pandemic, but certainly Australia of the top five, Australia and China uh, have had largely closed borders. We've talked about the impact in China uh, that that's had. Uh, there are still cities going into lockdown in China. Uh, Chengdu uh, area has been in lockdown for a few days now. Uh, for a fourth or fifth wave of, of COVID uh, that's hitting that country. So, but there, the hope is, and uh, sources on the ground in China seem, seem to suggest that in the spring of 22, uh, the country will be reopening in some, some way, shape, or form. We'll see what that, that looks like. But let's talk specifically about Australia. Australia probably uh, have uh, has suffered the most in terms, at least because we don't know the numbers from China, but uh, certainly suffered the most in terms of volume, in terms of economic impact. We've seen huge job losses where in Australia we'd have, um, I think, four, 432 job losses per per. Uh, per institution uh, was uh, some of the early data from the pandemic about six months in. Uh, that number has certainly increased. Uh, we've seen Australian institutions shifting uh, to online, uh, having to shift to online or doing uh, where students would begin their programs online and then on the hope that once borders reopen, they'll be able to come in. Uh, they are requiring vaccinations for uh, for any of these new international students coming in in, in starting later this month, early December, uh, into 2022 when the borders reopen more fully. Uh, there are some, some so certainly requirements that we're seeing in the U.S. now. Uh, coincidentally, this week, November 8th, on Monday this week. Uh, all international travelers outside of 50 countries where vaccination rates are below 10%. Uh, every international traveler, regardless of status, for, without relatively few exceptions, uh, for non-immigrants especially, would have to have a, a, a vac full, be fully vaccinated. And not just fully vaccinated, fully vaccinated at least two weeks before they arrive. And that's, the, that's a nugget that uh, I don't know how many institutions are really picking up on for the U.S., but for Australia, they're requiring fully vaccinated status before uh, before international students will be allowed back in. Uh, so that's 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 had a huge impact on them. Uh, we've seen applications to study in Australia this year dropping by 51% since March. Uh, we've seen Canadian, and this is from this this data here is from uh, Adventus IO, which is actually an Australian-founded company, one of the major agent aggregators. And this data, I've seen these these numbers in a lot of different articles this past week. They don't really put numbers on them other than percentages, so it's a little hard to say. They've only been around a couple of years, and during the same, they're talking about growths of in can, interest in Canada, 148%, UK, 150% increase. U.S. numbers grew by 422, probably from 4 to 16. I don't know what we're talking about there, but because we don't have hard numbers of, of applicants that they're dealing with on a history and all of that. They don't give you numbers. They just give you percentages, which is always a little bit dodgy. Uh, they always, the, the article says that uh, the uh, U.S. is now the second most uh, uh, popular behind the U.K. And just again, this is not a global, st global statistics. It's applicants using Adventist I.O. So take this with a pinch of salt in terms of the numbers. But the applications to, to Australia through Adventist have certainly dropped 51%. So we've seen other articles that have shared the financial impact as well. Uh, but I do want to show that uh, the, this long-term impact that we're talking about uh, uh, is significant. 
there are the latest government figures for November in Australia shows there are 259,752 student visa holders in Australia. More than half of those are in higher ed and postgrad. So uh, a number, the rest of those would be in um, uh, would be in vocational programs or secondary schools or that type of thing, ESL programs. Uh, the, the figure also shows an additional 148,464 student visa holders outside of Australia. So th these are ones that are the returning students uh, that have not been able to get back into the country yet, uh, that have been basically forced to do the last almost two years of their study fully online. Uh, so we'll, it'll be interesting to see what, what, what we're talking about there. Uh, Universities Australia uh, Deputy Chief has said that there's been a 40% decline in commencing international students from pre-pandemic levels, no surprise there. Uh, the, she says the closure of international borders during the COVID pandemic has obviously had an impact on the willingness of international students to enroll at an Australian university. Nonetheless, the fundamental attractiveness of an Australian education has not changed. And she certainly feels our corner has been turned. Uh, there are additional articles that I, I'm, I'm not sharing um, in, with this, with this, uh, on this, uh, this roundup today, but I did share in our newsletter that came out on Monday, and you might want to take a look at that story. Uh, there was a telling uh, quote from an from an international student that shared uh, really the, uh, about his experience. He's uh, coming from Sri Lanka. Uh, he said. The tuition fee hike really makes it difficult and online courses are not worth the investment. It makes more sense for me to study, continue my studies in Sri Lanka instead. So the two factors there that really are pushing the student away from, from Australia, that the uh, increased fees at a time when you're only able to do online for Australian universities uh, is a little bit of a double whammy for them and a kick, kind of kick in the face really. Uh, that <laughs> you're increasing the fees for a lower quality product uh, doesn't uh, where in terms of just doing an, uh, an online degree uh, doesn't make it attract more attractive for for students to consider Australia just starting Australia online uh, so that's that that student sentiment I think is certainly common we've or, we've shared other stories of uh, Indian students who have had to do their degrees completely online since the pandemic hit from their mobile phones. I mean, talk about having paying paying as much as as fifteen twenty thousand dollars a year to do to do a program where you can only access it from your mobile phone. Uh, so really, some significant challenges there. Uh, I think the, the Australia example is certainly one of those. There's a uh, Japan has been another one. Japan's not a top five destination, but certainly is a top twenty destination for international students. Uh, they probably top ten actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, uh, they now have are facing a situation where they have over seven three hundred seventy thousand foreigners uh, at the border. Well, waiting for the border to reopen. They're not at the border because they'd be in boats all around the island. So I guess that's not happening. But uh, of that three hundred seventy thousand, these are. Uh, Seventy percent of them are students and technical interns that are waiting to come back and uh, continue their programs. So that, uh, but it does look like uh, in in the spring, start well even uh, this week, uh, there may be new uh, rules laid out uh, where Japan will be uh, allowing those uh, those particularly students, but other other international workers back in. 
Japanese academics have been appealing for uh, for visas to be issued again to restart uh, the border openings. Uh, so there's been a lot of movement in Japan. There looks like they're they're going to be joining Australia, New Zealand, and China in 2022, opening their, opening their borders more fully. So we'll see where it goes. A lot of miles to dry, miles to go before we sleep here on this issue, but uh, certainly cost. Costs of closed borders have obviously immediate financial implications, but reputationally can have uh, consequences down the road as well. So we'll see how that all plays out and we'll certainly keep sharing our opinions here on the Roundup. So until next time, we wish you the very best and have a great week. Cheers.